Why don't you open your Bibles uh, to the book of Genesis, chapter 2. Genesis 2. Well, I'm so glad I got, to, I got to hug a handful of people today, and boy, did that make me happy. And uh, if you're thinking, hey, you didn't get me a squeeze, I'll hang out a little bit right here after service, and, and uh, you can get yourself a squeeze. Um, the book of Genesis is our origin story. Last week we saw that in Genesis chapter 1 that creation is God's desire and design. And without, without camping on each idea, we, we, we saw that God is creator, meaning that, that He created heaven and earth and He did so in artistic, intentional, affectionate brilliance. And that he did so by the power of his Holy Spirit and his spoken word. And then he blessed creation and he commanded it to abound. Remember, everything we see in the book of Genesis as it begins to un, uh, un, unfold is setting in motion something that will resound, something that will continue for eternity. Some of it will, a great deal of it, will need to be redeemed, but what we see is the intent of God. The beginning of so many things are found in this text. But the climax of creation, as we, as we land in chapter 1, the climax of creation is mankind. Mankind is made in the image of God. In the image... Hello, Sonia. Uh, you get a star on your name now. Listen, if I've been praying for you, if you're on my prayer bus, and that prayer bus has been pretty heavy of late. But if you're on that bus, and then I see you in church, you get a star. Sorry, I get a little distracted. Oh, Jesus, thank you. Thank you. I've also been distracted by seeing Barney and Kimmy because I always miss them in the front. Yeah, I like, I like their faith, and also Kimmy yells at me good in church. So I like that too. Yeah, you good. You get a good star. And Barney just gets blessed. He just goes. <laughs> anyway, the climax of creation is mankind made in the image and the likeness of God. It's a big deal. But now we're into chapter two. And what we'll see this week is we will see heaven's design for humanity. Chapter 2 helps answer the question, how should man live in God's world? (laughs) Now, last week we read through the entirety of the text, and I got a little carried away because it's so exciting. So what we'll do, I'll try to see if I can contain myself a little better and uh, just take one portion of the text at a time. So let's begin with heaven's design. Let's go through... Uh, The first three verses talk about the seventh day of creation. And I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Uh, It's the 2020 edition. They They revised it just a little bit for last year. Here's how it reads. And so the heavens and the earth were completed and all their heavenly lights. Once again, the narrator 
although it, it's it's there and he mentions it, it's not. He doesn't make a big the heavens and the earth and also the and also all the lights in the sky. So he then what is the again? This is not a this is not a cosmological textbook. This is not this is not Carl Strader. This is not. Uh, Carl Strader. That's that's Stephen's dad. What, Sagan. Carl Sagan. Carl Strader is in heaven, I think. God bless him, and he's a good man. I shouldn't have. Whatever that means. Anyway, but uh, anyway, so I don't know about I don't know about the other Carl, but anyway, I should stick to my notes. Uh, I should. I'll see Stephen tomorrow. I apologize for that. Uh, by the seventh day, God completed His work which He had done. And he rested on the seventh day from his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. That's a signal. Get your pen out. What did we just see brand new in the Bible? Sanctified. Wow. The first time we see the idea of something being sanctified is in the context of rest. Uh, not striving. The first time we see sanctification, it, it's it's something. It, oh Lord Jesus, my goodness sakes! Sanctified is something that happens to you. Right. Oh no! Come on. You think? Wait a minute! I thought I had to. <laughs> Sanctify, sanctify, sanctify. <laughs> Calisthenics are good for you, but only God can sanctify you. <laughs> it rhymed because it was the same word. It wasn't even hard. God blessed it and sanctified it. It occurred in the context of rest. Clearly, it's a priority, but the first time we see the idea... And so we, and then remember, <laughs> I'm already a way over time. <laughs> but uh, remember our audiences that are reading this. We've come out of, these are people that have come out of Egypt. Um, and then later on, everybody else after that, they, they hear the law of Moses. They, these are people that are in Bab- Babylonian captivity. And the idea of being separated, living holy, being sanctified is, is something that is essential to their culture, to their identity, to, their, to, their, to, to Yahwehism. And yet, so they read this and they say, hey, wait a minute. The first time something is sanctified, it's sanctification is something that happens to it by God in the context of rest. Wow. Which makes sense now when we fast forward. <laughs> when we fast forward all the way to Peter, when he repeats Old Testament literature and teaching his uh, flock and his epistles, when Peter says, when we read, be holy for I am holy, right? He who, even he has called you as holy. That's why if you, if you look at it with a closer lens, it's a, it's a passive imperative. Meaning Peter's, the, the Greek language that Peter, when Peter writes, he says, he says, be made holy as he who called you is holy. Being holy begins with contact. It becomes conduct. But it always begins by something you receive, something that God does to you. Well, that's good enough. 
we only had church till 9.57, we'd be at home. But there's more to read. <laughs> he sanctified it because he rested from all his work, which you're sanctified because it is finished. You're sanctified because Jesus' work is finished. Amen. He rested on from all his work which he, had, which he had made. God rested not because he was weary, but because it was finished and it was very good. This will become something. The idea of resting, again, we read this. We're not, we're not reading this in real time. No one's reading it in real time. We're reading it having uh, even those who are reading it have already begun to hear the commands about the Sabbath and the, you know, the Ten Commandments. And they think, ah, I get it, that resting, that, that, that resting on purpose is something that an image bearer does. It is image, image bearer activity is where the image bearer imitates, emulates the image giver. So we rest to intentionally recognize the completeness and the perfection of the work of the image giver. Again, consider this in contrast to the world around the early audience. Consider this in context. So, the, so Yahweh, or rather still we're calling him Elohim. So Elohim rests on, he rests, but in contrast to the Egyptian gods or the Babylonian gods, or even in contrast to the contemporary secularistic small g gods that would that uh, that that we, this is what we understand from the text that God is not anxious about his creation but he is at ease with the well-being of his own rule the sabbath then becomes a prophetic statement about the world it announces that the world is safely in God's hands the world will not disintegrate if we stop our efforts, the world relies on God's promises, on his power, his providence, not on our efforts. So the Sabbath rest then becomes for you and I a break with every effort to achieve, to secure ourselves, or to make the world in our image according to our purposes. Now, then the rest of this, the rest of the chapter, chapter 2, and the rest of the Bible, really zeroes in on humanity. Pick it up at chapter, uh, verse 4 through 6 now. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God, you want to get your pen out, you want to circle that, in the day that the Lord God, well, I'll talk about it in just a minute. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and heaven. Now, no shrub of the field was yet on earth, and no plant of the, of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God, underline it again, had not yet sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Begin with verse with, with verse four. We hear this is the account, and your Bible might have a different rhythm. I might say this is the generations, or this is a something. But this is a, a Hebrew phrase that occurs eleven times in the book of Genesis, and what it does is it's, it it sets up the the book of Genesis into essentially eleven chapters, eleven segments. 
Remember when we went through the book of Revelation, or if you were here, we talked about the fact that John said to, to break up the slideshow of the visions he was seeing, he would say, and then I saw to let us know that the chunk, 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 the slide projector needed to change. Well, that's what's happening in Genesis. There are, there are uh, stories that are being presented, uh, uh, the emphases that are being uh, presented, and each time the, the, the chapter, if you will, changes, we have this, and this, this is the account. So now we, verse 4 is, the, another, is another beginning point. This is the account of... And then it says, and so then we see uh, the heavens and the earth when they were created. And then verse 5, we talked about no shrub of the field, nothing here, nothing here yet. But then he said there, wasn't, there, there was no rain, there was no man to till, but a, but a, a mist rose. The, what we need to hear is that these, these verses, 4 and 5 and 6, echo really chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. That it, it's tempting for you and I to say, oh, if there was no rain, it must have been dry. It must have been like the Sahara Desert or something like that. Well, we need to, that, that's probably not the case. It's probably more the case of what it looks like in chapter 1, that there was no rain but a mist would rise. That It's possible in some context to read that, that being a gentle mist, but it's more likely if we take the context and the language that the, 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 the narrator is telling us that there was no shrubs, there was nothing growing because everything was a watery mess, just like it says in chapter 1. Everything was a watery mess. There was nothing. but a, So when it says a mist used to rise, think of it like a dense, fog, watery, swampy mess. That's how it was. The earth was like that. But that's so, so he's just reminding us of the state of creation before God began to act. Okay. But that's not the cool part. The cool part is this. When we read chapter 1 and we read the first three verses of chapter 2, every time that the narrator mentions God, what does he say? He just Our Bible just says God, right? But it's Elohim. And so it's just one where God did this, God did this, God did this, God, he, God, God spoke. And then chapter 2, God, God completed, then God sanctified, God blessed, God rested. Elohim. But now, with this new chapter, there's, we, what happens now? We see this. And then the Lord God. What's going on with that? What's the deal with that? The Lord God. Now the, the narrator introduces a modifier to God, Elohim. Now he introduces the phrase or the word Yahweh. This is the first time, chapter 2, verse 4, is the first time we, that we, the reader, see Yahweh. And Yahweh, in the Old Testament, is God's covenant name. Yahweh is the name he uses to introduce, to reveal himself. So what we're seeing in chapter 2 now, we're not just learning something about humanity. We are seeing God is revealing himself to humanity. Woo! Now God is getting up close and personal before. In chapter 1, we have transcendent Elohim. Tremendous cosmic power. <laughs> but in chapter 2, God comes near in Yahweh. God the revealer. God the covenant God. God the relating God. <laughs> and what does he do? Verse 7. Then the Lord God, then Yahweh Elohim formed the man of the dust in the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. 
Yahweh Elohim formed the man, the ground, like a master potter. It's the same language as a one who would work with clay, a potter, a master sculptor. And then he formed the man, and then he filled him with his own breath, with his own spirit, breathed into his nostrils. That's not something you can do from far away. This is something you would do intimately. If God did it from far away, he would have gone... Right? It, this, is, this is something that God, the face of God, came near to his, to his image and likeness and prints it on there and then breathes the very breath of life into him. This makes mankind unique from all creation. God said everything else, live. And they did. But man, he formed and then breathed into it. We became a living person. And so that's why Paul says, of course, in Acts chapter 17, he says, in him we live and move and have our being. We are his offspring. And it is no wonder that, that time and again, the book of Psalms calls that let everything that has breath praise the Lord. It is your breath in our lungs. And so we do pour out our praise. Then in verse 8. Then Yahweh Elohim, then the Lord God planted a garden toward the east. I'm sorry, I said then he did, but no. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Yeah, watch, watch your, if you're worrying about sequence here, don't think, well, is, it, is this linear here? No, he's telling us that he formed the man, but then he put the man in a garden that he had already formed. We see that in chapter one. All right, not Not important. What's important is that this is that he that God places man in this garden. Out of the ground the Lord caused every tree to grow that is pleasing to sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. <laughs> Spoiler alert, those come up later. <laughs> oh, okay. But we'll get to there. Now here is where God places man. He places him in a garden. Garden means fenced place. The idea is that this is intentional. God has an intentional, even he makes man intentionally and he places man intentionally. Then verse 10, he, the, the narrator stops and he describes Eden. And it almost sounds like he's just like, like it's an aside, like it's a footnote. But there is something here. So let's just, I'll read it quickly and then we'll just understand what they're saying. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And from there, it divided and became four rivers. Now the name, and then it talks about the names of the rivers and where they went. And then it talks about the, the gold of the land was good and the and onyx, on onyx stone was good. And then there's a second river and where it flowed and then the name of the and then Tigris and then the Euphrates. We see that these rivers are described. But the point is that there was a single river that was flowing out of Eden and it broke up and spilled out and became rivers, great rivers everywhere. The narrator wants us to know that God is the author of life and that life was flowing out of the garden, that it was a gift from God and it was flowing out. And if we're, we're going to see the motif, the trope, if you will, of this river of life resurface throughout all of scripture and it comes all the way back at the, at the very end in Revelation when John looks at the New Jerusalem and he says, why by golly, there was a river flowing right from the throne, right down the middle of that city as well. There's so much to say. If we were in a camp here, you could just look at how this idea of a river of life is, is all through Scripture. And then to the, 
And in redemption, Jesus says that if we'll come to him and drink, because there's a river of life flowing out of his and then our innermost person. So good. Verse 15, then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to tend it. I want us to pay probably most careful attention today. That's maybe not, but at least really good attention to these three verses, 15, 16, and 17. Then the Lord God took the man out and put him, put him in the garden to do what? To cultivate it and to tend it. The Lord God commanded the man from any tree of the garden you may freely eat. Make sure you say that with emphasis. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For on the day that you eat from it, you will certainly die. These three verses show us what I think later writers will eventually recognize as what was called certain unalienable rights by our creator. Where did that idea come from, that we have certain rights that are endowed to us by our creator? Well, we can see them here. These three verses provide a remarkable statement. Human beings before God are characterized. How, how, how are we supposed to live in God's world? What is heaven's design for humanity? Right away, in the garden, we see that mankind is characterized by three things. Number one, we are characterized by vocation, and then liberty, and then boundary. Yeah. Listen, first, man was made for vocation. Man, he said he was put in the garden to tend it, to cultivate it, and to tend it. Someone say cultivate. cultivate. To develop, to, to take what God had given him and to make something with it, to do something. As a human being, God made you to create. You have a calling. You have a purpose to be, to do. I'm not saying you need to be a sculptor or a painter, but as a human being, you are not purposeless. You were created with purpose to develop, to cultivate, to tend, to protect. You, have a, you are created to live and to produce, yes. not for someone else, but as an, as an offering of worship unto God. Yes. You are alive for a reason. There's vocation. The second thing we see is liberty. Man was made for and given liberty. Yes. <laughs> Mrs. Dab shot me down. I'm thinking, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? Liberty, Pastor Dab. I don't see no flags here. Look, from any, read, read it carefully again. He puts him in the garden and says, hey, from any tree of the garden you may freely eat. That's liberty. That's freedom. Hey, hey, this is yours. You, because you are made in the image and likeness of God, God's design for humanity is not to live under micromanaged layers of oppressive this and that and the other thing. That's tyranny and oppression is not the design of heaven. And that's why humanity always bristles against it or is crushed beneath it. We are always less than human when we live under that. But, but liberty is planted inside the heart of humanity. But then also man was given boundary. Yeah. Good. Boundary. He said, now, you can eat from any of these trees. There's a whole bunch of them, and they're beautiful, and they're great. There's no, well, don't eat from that one. Man was given boundary. But listen, that certain and specific prohibition, the purpose of it was to protect and to guard 
life and liberty. So you usually we read that and it sounds like God's saying, hey, now you can eat from any tree. You eat from that tree and I'm going to kill you. It's not a threat. It was, this is your liberty. But if you violate your liberty, if you choose to live on your own terms, you will die. This is, don't go further than this. This is where you must, you must live within the boundary that God gives. Or you will forfeit. If you live on your own terms, then you take your life in your own hands. The primary task then of, of, the, of, the, of the human then is to find a way to hold these three facets of divine purpose together. Any two of them without the third will just pervert our life. It is so telling and it is so ironic that if you are like me and you're a church boy, you're a church girl, listen, the, the little attention is given the mandate of vocation and the gift of liberty in the Garden of Eden. Few people talk about vocation and liberty as part of God's, God's grand and perfect design. Most of the time when we talk about Eden, we talk about, we talk about what is prohibited. Oh, Garden of Eden, oh, that's where they weren't supposed to do stuff. No, it was a place of vocation and liberty. But somehow, because we violated our liberty, because that was violated, mankind since the fall has become obsessed with and at the same time despises control. <laughs> we resent any control placed upon us. Anybody says something? <laughs> don't you, don't, don't tell us what to do. But, but mankind, given the opportunity, will pile control on everybody else or anyone else. That's why these things can't be perverted. Boundaries exist because they are God's idea and because they are necessary to promote and to protect life and liberty, vocation and liberty. This is, this, this is heaven's design for the image bearer to live in God's world and not a world of our own making. The destiny of humanity is to live in God's world on God's terms. Then verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Yeah, yeah. But you got to get your pen out. What have we seen so far? We've seen sanctified. We circled that. We hadn't seen that before today, did we? Then we didn't see Yahweh Elohim before we did it. We got to circle that. Now what do we see for the first time in the Bible? Not good. This is the first time something's not good. In all that God has done, all that he's blasted, good, 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 plant, good, man, good, stars, good, fish, good, meat, good. Oh, that's later. That's after the flood. Can't wait till that. Thank God. (laughs) Then he said, it's not good. What's not good? So, so far we've seen that man is made for vocation, for liberty, and boundary. See what chapter 2 is unfolding for us. Now we see something else about humanity. And as God is revealing his own nature to us, God sees and says it is not good for the man to be alone. I should finish reading before I talk. You ready? I will make a help I will make him a helper suitable, one that fits, comparable, one that matches. 
No bees. He's going to zombie down. And out of the ground the Lord formed every animal of the field and every bird of the sky. And he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. Then the man gave the man gave names to all the livestock, and the, he called that meat, and he called that breakfast, that lunch, and that dinner. No, I'm sorry. Jesus, help me. And the man gave the names to the livestock and to the birds of the sky and to every animal of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. None of those things matched. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place, and the Lord fashioned. Isn't that neat, babe? It said fashion. Yeah. Lord fashioned. Lord fashioned. He formed a dude, but he fashioned a woman. He fashioned into a woe, man, the, the rib that he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Then the man said in verse 23, what does he say? At last. It's right there in the Bible. My love has come along. It's right there in the Bible. Flesh of my flesh, and she'll be called woman because she was taken out of man. All right. Let's take a look at this passage. Number one, this is the only not good in the story so far. And what is not good is that God says it is not good that man should be alone, that man should live in isolation. (laughs) Man is made for vocation, for liberty, the boundary, but but man is not made for isolation. Man is made for community, for fellowship. It is a violation of the human inner being of our of our of our God made person to be alone. Man is made for communion. Man is made for fellowship. Please say that with me. Man is made for fellowship. To connect. God, then so we see here that God says He's going to make someone comparable, suitable. Now then all the animals are brought, and God, we see that God has delegated dominion over the animal kingdom to Adam. This is what they are, this is what their name is, this is what they do. I'm the boss, I'm the boss. He's, he exercises dominion, but nothing over. <laughs> Come on, ladies, help me out here. Not, you're gonna, you ready? Nothing over which Adam has dominion is a suitable helper for him. Oh. Nothing over which he has dominion fits him. If I was in there, I'd be like, man, that guy's saying good stuff. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Everything over over which he has dominion is different. So God needs something comparable. This is not necessarily God's learning curve. Don't read this like, well, God's like, well, golly, I brought him a zebra. What's he want? (laughs) This... This is not God's learning curve. This is Adam's learning curve. And the reader's learning curve. Oh, the reader said, oh. Oh. 
they not property. And so he takes from Adam's side. You're about, we all say the rib, and that's fine, but the Hebrew is he just took from his side. Whatever happened there, Adam became, whatever, Adam was not what he was before. He was less than something. He was different. He was missing something. So see, if something is removed, See, and, the, and, and, and however literal this is, we are, the narrator wants us to see that, that, that man and woman are, have our, that, that we are a shared humanity, that we, that we are made for union. He's taken from the side, taken from within Adam himself, and then Adam says, ooh, at last, this is it, this is it, this is the thing. And, I, and, and of course... It's fun to, you know, to be have fun with that and even romanticize it a bit, but right now this is just humanity. This doesn't need to be a, a Hallmark movie yet. Thank God. <laughs> okay, Eve was Eve wasn't you know from the big city and moving back and seeing Adam and. <laughs> He wasn't a country star who lost his... Anyway, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> this is about humanity. This is just the fact that humanity is not... It's not good for us to be alone. That, but man was created to be a social, to have fellowship for community and communion. What we see is that the first institution, the first and highest great, and the greatest order of that fellowship is, is marriage. But that it, it doesn't only mean that. It means we are made for communion together. And then the author summarizes, and he kind of snaps back into, as if you were reading this, it kind of snaps into the present reader, and he said, now listen, did you see that? For this, for this reason, man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, but they were not ashamed. Now that's a beautiful statement, and and what we we what we see here in these two final two verses is that the crescendo of creation is relationship. Yeah. Most of the time, people say the last thing God created was human beings. Now that's true, but the last thing He created, the final work of His creation, really, is relationship. Communion. Now, we need to recognize, however, what this passage does set in motion. If this is in Genesis and it sets something in motion for all of history, we recognize that in Genesis, the union of man and wife, that the marriage covenant is the first of all human institutions. It is the beginning and the highest order of relationship. It sets the pattern and the principle for all relationships. And it tells us that the marriage, as is designed here, is, is expressly God's design. Marriage between a man and a woman is the most ancient and fundamental institution on earth. And anything other than marriage the way God has laid it out here, then it becomes blasphemy. Because man, this is an expression of God's glory. 
So chapter 2, now the, now the whole of the creation narrative has come to an end, and how does it end? How does, this, the, how does creation end? The, the narrative pauses here, and here, where are we left? We see that, that God's design, heaven's design for humanity, how should man, how is man designed, supposed to live on God's earth? That we live, we, it closes with mankind in harmony with one another, even when it says they were naked and unashamed, that means, listen, let, let, that, let that speak to us, that they were vulnerable, they were honest, there was not pretense, there was not hiding, there was not pride, there was not trickery, there was not manipulation of one another. They were honest and vulnerable with each other with nothing to fear. Imagine a world where you live with people and you're open and vulnerable with nothing to fear. No one's going to be out to get you or expose you or harm you. This is God's design for humanity. Mankind living in harmony with one another and with their creator and with the world around them with with vocation and liberty and boundary. This is God's design. Heaven has a design for humanity. We see in the text this morning that God is the giver of abundant life and provision. That man was made for vocation, that man is made for liberty, that man is given boundary, and that man is made for fellowship. We know because we've read the rest of the story, or we know that something that after this, something went wrong. We know that sin, because of sin, much of this was polluted and perverted and fractured. But here's the good news. Redemption. In Jesus Christ, redemption is the restoration of heaven's design. Yes. In Christ, we have become new creations. Yes. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, gone and the new has come. The boundaries, the, the trespasses that were broken, thank God Isaiah told us that he himself bore the punishment for our transgressions. That Christ has borne the punishment for our boundary breaking. He died. And in Christ Jesus, we have received the breath of God anew by the Holy Spirit. No wonder Jesus gathers his disciples close to him in the book of John before he leaves. And he literally breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Redemption is the renewal, the restoration. Jesus said that he came to give us life and life more abundantly. And that he promised that there would be a river that flows out of him. All the things that we see in in, in God's original design is available to us in Christ's redemption. We will read in the Bible that following Jesus means that everything we do is worship unto him. That our new vocation is literally to whatever we say or we do, we do it all unto Jesus. It is the Lord Christ we are serving. That my life has new purpose. That everything I do now, I do as unto him. And Jesus came to give us liberty. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Hey, liberty and freedom and, and is, is, the, is the culture and the climate of heaven itself. And our freedom in Christ is still not without boundary. 
To follow Jesus means immediately, the first thing we do to follow Jesus is repent from boundary breaking. But then life in the Spirit leads us away from even boundary pushing lives. Galatians chapter 5 says, if you walk by the Spirit, you you won't follow the desires of the flesh. But the fruit of the Spirit produces in us virtues that, that Paul says, against such there is no law. And in Christ, we have been brought together. We are all in Christ together. Paul says we all have access to the Father by one Spirit. In Christ, by the power of the Spirit, we have been brought together. That's why Paul says to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And finally, even marriage itself has become the proclamation of redemption. That's what Paul will say later. Say later. He, will, he will quote uh, uh, Genesis 2 and then immediately say, and this is the mystery. This is about now. This is Christ and the church. In Christ. God has redeemed all that is lost. That, friends, is why Jesus says in Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that, all of that, which has been lost. We see heaven's design for creation, and we recognize that, that in Christ's redemption, he has restored all things. He is bringing us back to that place. Let's stand together. Karen just wanted to thank everybody for their prayers for her while she was sick and for welcoming her back. Yeah, thank you, sweet lady. Aaron said to me, hey, what, what song do you want to use to close with today? And I said, here's how I want to close today. Genesis 2 can seem something like it's so far away, so far removed even. Such a place of, of a blessing and that can feel so different from our lives where they are right now. But I want you to see the hope that Jesus Christ has. That salvation in Jesus Christ is not just, hey, don't worry, it'll get better after you die. but that the kingdom of heaven is already at hand and that although there will always be more to come, that that Jesus Christ, that he has come to bring the power of redemption at work in our lives right now. And if you feel like in your life, there are areas in your life that need redemption, that need restoration, 
that have been lost because of boundary breaking or oppression or sin itself. And we aren't trying to sling shame today. We're just saying this. If you feel today, and I believe the Holy Spirit would prompt you, if you feel today like I am a candidate for redemption and restoration, for the Lord to restore that which has been lost in my life, I believe that heaven has a good plan for my life. Let's just take a few moments and pray together about that today. Why don't you by faith just lift a hand and say, yeah, that's me. I, I have something in my life. I need, I would like, I'm asking Jesus to seek out me, to save, to restore that which has been lost in my life. I need Christ's saving, redeeming, restoring work today. Why don't you just lift up a hand. Aaron, would you lead us? Let's just let the Holy Spirit work. Come all you weary, come all you thirsty, come to the well that never runs dry. Bless you guys. Have a great day. God, so-